You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er fam? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Jessica Janier. Jessica is an author, speaker, and the founder of Look Up and Beyond, Inc. Now, Look Up and Beyond is a personal development organization that is committed to helping people move past their pain from current and past experiences to live a purpose-driven life. And Jessica's own story is one of overcoming poverty, dysfunction, and trauma and she's now inspired to help other people do the same. Her background is incredibly powerful, and I'm so happy I had a chance to talk to her, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Go ahead, take a listen. Jessica, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I am incredible. Thank you for having me. I love the positivity already. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, you've been excited since like the first time we we chatted and knowing a little bit about your story. I'm really happy to have you on. I think this is going to be a great conversation. So tell us, who is Jessica Janier? Jessica Janier is someone who lives, who is the epitome of never judge a book by its cover. I believe that um, my life reflects that saying. Mm -hmm. And it's because I have a very unique story. Um, I was born in Germany on a farm. I lived there the first six years of my life, had this very innocent German life and was raised by my grandparents. Um, Had a very rough beginning because my mom was homeless when she was pregnant with me and was in an abusive relationship and was looking for an abortion and could find no one to have the abortion. So I ended up at my grandparents' home and again, lived there for these wonderful six years. And then one day she showed up and said, you're coming to America with me. And she was remarried by then. Um, So I had a stepfather and half siblings who I don't like to refer to as half siblings, Mm -hmm. but for the sake of the storytelling, um, I'll say that they are technically my half siblings. And we came to America. The unique thing was my mom was kicked out of her small German town because she married a black man and my siblings are biracial. Mm -hmm. And the town was very racist. They were not ready for that. And we ended up moving into the United States now in an all black family, an all black community. So I now became the minority and ended up in all black schools. And um, that transition was very difficult because not the whole idea of being the minority, but it was a language barrier. Mm -hmm. I did not speak English when I first came to the country. I'm in a new family that was not very welcoming. They were not very happy about the fact that my stepfather married a white woman and they made it very obvious and there was a lot of abuse and dysfunction and so this very innocent life now turned into a very traumatic experience Um, and it just seemed to happen overnight and I didn't understand it as a kid and so I had a very rough childhood once I came to America into my teenage years was a high risk teen because of the abuse in my home and outside of my home My stepfather was an alcoholic. He was extremely physically abusive to the point where had someone known what was being done to me, it probably would have made the front newspaper Mm -hmm. um, because the abuse was that um, dramatic. And so that caused some problems, as you can imagine, within myself. Um, I had very low self-esteem. I became very rebellious. I was hanging out with the wrong crowd. And then the abuse magnified Mm -hmm. as time went on. So... Um, growing up in a domestic violence home was something that showed me what I did not want. And I'm grateful for it now when I look back. And being that this is Domestic Violence Month and a lot of people are talking about it, creating awareness about it, um, I know that that's part of my story, that we grew up in a home where domestic violence was prevalent and shaped so much of our belief system. Um, So that's really like the foundational years. Mm -hmm. And I found myself as a teen 
just very broken, not sure what my purpose was. I was um, suicidal. I tried to commit suicide three times within three years. And I honestly felt that I had no purpose for a long time. And it wasn't until I moved out of home and it was a, there was a certain situation that happened that really was a bad situation, but I looked at it in terms of how can I become inspired by it? Mm -hmm. And it was a turning point in my life. And from there, I really started to actively seek what my purpose was. And I started to focus on healing and overcoming the trauma that I had dealt with um, in my childhood and teen years. Okay. So you've given us a great overview and I want to unpack a few chapters of that story. So you're living in Germany with your grandparents. You were not bilingual at that point. Did you know who your mother was? I don't think so. Okay. No. So this woman comes, shows up that you don't know. And did this all happen in the same day? Like she shows up, you know, one day you're just with your grandparents and everything's awesome in this small little town. And then the next day, this person came and said, I'm your mom and I'm taking you. Mm -hmm. Is that how it happened? So I have very vague memories mm -hmm that someone was present. And I remember my stepfather coming around. Um, and I remember it because he was, he was the only black man in the town. Mm -hmm. So I know that she had to be around at some point before the actual news that we were leaving for America. But I can't say that I have a clear memory of her. Okay. Yeah. So, but at this point, you know, you know that you're being taken yes. from your grandparents. And if you know anything about life experience, experiences in transition, especially at that age, you can readily identify that as trauma. So would you say that that was your initial or uh, first traumatic experience as Absolutely. a child? Absolutely. Okay. So you guys leave Germany and then where do you land in the States when you first get here? Yeah. So we ended up in Seattle, Washington. Of all places. Of all Seattle. places. My stepfather was military. Okay. So he was stationed there for mm -hmm. a short time. And I don't have many memories except that I got a whoop in there. <laughs> I got a beaten. Like, okay. Yes. I was playing with fire. And I think it was because I was just bored and, and just doing what kids do. Right. Mm -hmm. Curious, not being supervised. And he found out and I got a real whooping. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So some people will hear this and say, well, that's just black culture, uh -huh. right? And, you know, people get spankings, they get whippings. That's what it is. That's not, quote, abuse unusual. for or unusual for a lot. A lot of people still believe that. Now, I have my thoughts about, you know, holdovers from slavery and mm -hmm. just how we discipline and what have you. But when you, you referenced already that you were abused, I know it's not just that, that you got, you know, a whooping. So when mm -hmm. did things change? You were in Seattle. Were you living at that point with your stepfather's family? Was it just your family unit? Mm -hmm. happening at that point? So we only stayed in Seattle for a few months okay. and then we moved to Queens, okay. New York. And then we lived with his parents, okay. which were my step-grandparents. Mm -hmm. And they were not happy <laughs> about it. And I know because I, I grew up in Black culture mm -hmm. and Black culture has shaped so much of who I am, um, I knew from a young age that there was a difference between culture and abuse. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I know the difference. And and a lot, and it's a very thin line between the two um, because it's it's very common in African American culture, Caribbean culture, to get a whooping. Mm -hmm. There's nothing abusive about it, you know. And I have my personal opinions, and even with how my husband and I raised our children, we're not against the good whooping mm -hmm. when necessary, you know. Even though I had a lot of trauma and was physically abused, I did not hold back in disciplining my kids, mm -hmm. but used discretion, and I knew where the line was drawn. Um, but to answer your question, we did move to Queens and we ended up living with his grandparents. And again, they were not happy. They were extremely embarrassed, I, I believe, because they would not let me out of the house. Um, the Probably the strongest memories I have of their home was that they played gospel music all the time. Mm -hmm. My step-grandmother used to wear church hats. And for a long time, I hated anybody that had on a church hat. Mm -hmm. Triggering. Um, very very triggering. Mm -hmm. And she used to call me all kinds of names. And it seemed like no matter what I did, I was always in trouble. Mm -hmm. And there were times when she would say, go downstairs and get a switch. And then I would go downstairs. I would have to pick my switch. And when I went up the stairs and brought it back to her, she would test it on her hand. And if it wasn't to her 
standard, she would send me back down. And sometimes we did this about three times and or until she was just frustrated. She went down and got the switch and then she would beat the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and because I'm white, it showed, but to the point where I bled. I literally remember bleeding and not being able to sit down. Mm without feeling pain and just being so preoccupied with this pain. And I'm thinking like, okay, I'm always in trouble now. Like I thought there was something wrong with me because I'm always in trouble. Mm -hmm. Why am I always in trouble? Like, and I really believe that it was those years that I lost my voice Mm -hmm. because for a long time, it took me until I was in my late twenties, 30 years old. I'm 39 now. And I'm just now in these last couple of years, finding the confidence to use my voice and to really believe and to know that Jessica has a voice and my voice matters. I have a story. But beyond that, I have experiences that can impact and and inspire people. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was in that setting, in that environment where my voice was snatched away because every little thing I did was an issue and got me in trouble. So you're 39 now. So this is when you were, what, six, seven, somewhere in there. So when I lived in Rosedale, I was probably about seven, eight. Yes. And then about between eight and 10, we moved out of the house Mm -hmm. and we we moved to another part of Queens. Okay. So I'm just trying to get like the timeline in in my head. This is the 80s. Yes, exactly. So in the 80s, they had an issue with you as a white child and her white mother being integrated into their community. Why do you think that was? I think that when I look back now, Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it now. I think that number one, there was so much residue left Mm -hmm. of racism that they personally experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, As I got older and I really started to think back to my step-grandparents who, you know, they are deceased now. um, I felt compassion and hurt for them because Mm -hmm. I felt that they also had a story. And I'm sure that when they saw my mother and, and myself, um, it was just too, it was triggering for them mm-hmm. because I know, I don't know all of their history, but I knew enough to know that they did come from down South and mm-hmm. they were from a family of cotton pickers and that there was, and then there is a history of slavery in that family. And so I'm sure that they were very disappointed that their son brought home a white woman and it was very triggering that not only did he bring on my white woman, but now you got a white woman and her white child. Mm-hmm. And you're in my home and I'm in an all black community. I'm serving in an all black church. How do I how do I explain that to my peers, my cohorts, my my community? How Mm -hmm. do I explain that? So I can imagine now looking back that it was challenging for them. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't excuse the fact that they were abusive and that they treated me in the manner that they did, especially being that I was a child. Right. Um, I don't excuse that, but I can have empathy and compassion. And I, when I had that, it really was a moment for me because I was like, wow, I don't hate these people. I don't. And I I don't. And I I haven't hated them um, since I had that revelation. It was more of like, wow, I wish I could have sat with them Mm -hmm. and had a talk to hear their pain a little bit more. Right. They were speaking from their experience. Exactly. Like you said, not that it excuses anything, but one of the things that I try to remind myself often is everybody's in their own personal battle. Mm -hmm. And that battle, often everything you see is through the lens and you're projecting your unresolved pain or anger Mm -hmm. onto whatever's in front of you, whoever is a target, for lack of a a better word. And you were in a situation where not only were you a white child in an all-black environment and essentially an all-black family because you had siblings who were biracial, but you also didn't speak the language. Mm -hmm. So how did you integrate into your community, into your school, learn English and all all that stuff that comes with immigrating here from somewhere Mm -hmm. else? My school experience was I was in a classroom Mm -hmm. by myself, the only student, and I had one teacher who taught me English. Wow. That was my elementary first years of elementary. Um, The other experience was that because I was the only white kid in the entire school, I stood out. So after school, I had a mob of kids waiting for me. And I used to have to have to choose. I had to choose between planning an escape route Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and trying to make it home? Or was I going to stand there and learn to fight back? And after running for some time and it just got exhausting or there were times when I ran and it just was not enough. I Mm -hmm. I would, you know, I'd get caught up. I just learned to fight back. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started to fight back that I realized that some people would just stop bothering me. And I don't advocate violence, but I do understand that sometimes you got to get the ringleader and you got to put a good whooping on them. Right. And everybody leaves you alone. That's the code. You got to find the find toughest the person, the, the loudest mouth, yes. the biggest bully. And biggest you whoop instigator. Them, everybody will, will, will fall back. So I learned that in a between second and third grade. <laughs> okay. So you're in school isolated with, you know, one, you know, teacher to student, teacher to student ratio at home. You're not really being let out to play. I hate to even say it like that, but they're treating you like an animal, it's right? True. Caged up. Yes. So when and how did you find a tribe, you know, friends or people that you could confide in and have a, a sense of community here? Mm-hmm. I feel like I didn't find a tribe or friends until I was older as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And even then I had challenges with having friends because I was so broken by that time and traumatized that I attracted other people who were like that. Mm-hmm. And so we would just engage in very dysfunctional and um, destructive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And that was part of surviving. That was part of just the environment that I was in. Um, because yes, we had the abuse inside of the home, but I had abuse outside of the home that I was dealing with. With We moved a lot as mm-hmm. a family. And because of the domestic violence, police were always at our home. Okay. And so we had to move a lot. We always had problems with the landlord. Um, My stepfather was very manipulative and controlling and he did not want my mother working. So we were on welfare and then he didn't want to share his check to pay. So it was just this very dysfunctional cycle that we grew up in. And it was like, okay, I really believed that there had to be more to life. And I I consider myself even to this day a dreamer. Mm -hmm. I've always been a dreamer. I've always looked for ways to, find hope in something. And I remember even as a kid writing poetry, listening to certain music, reading books. Books were a big escape for me. And to this day, I love books. Mm -hmm. And I have tons and tons of books. And my dream is to one day own a home where I have a walk-in library and I have a whole vision for this library um, because books help me escape my immediate environment. Mm -hmm. And they help me to believe that there's more to life than what you're seeing. I grew up in the 80s. And when we lived in certain communities, we were in like near the projects in the hood. We the crack epidemic was at its height in black communities. Now, I didn't know any of the the social terms as a kid, but I remember seeing um, drug addicts that were passed out on our steps. And as a kid, we used to jump over them, not knowing if they were alive or dead. Mm -hmm. You know, we seeing the crack vials everywhere, DTs and detectives coming at any given moment and pulling out guns and just randomly running through the neighborhood. When you have children all through the neighborhood, totally disregarding the fact that they were kids, they would never do that in certain communities. I knew that as I got older, I didn't know that as a kid. I didn't know that I was witnessing the very reason that Black Lives Matter exists. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that. So you're in this war zone and people who are like not, who don't realize that what New York City is today, like what the boroughs are today and what it was in the 80s, two completely different situations. It has changed a lot. And, you know, with gentrification and and revitalization, if you want to call it that or what have you, but it's a different situation. So you have this dream, you know, that there's a world outside of this and what I'm experiencing. Did you ever think like, I'm going to tell somebody what I'm going through at home because it's a bad situation and I know this is not how other people live? Or did you just feel stuck until, you know, you were old enough to move out on your Mm -hmm. own? So I remember when I was in elementary school, I reported the abuse you did. to a guidance counselor. Okay. They called the social worker. The social worker came to my home. They never checked me. My stepfather, who was always very charming with people, mm-hmm. he had a way to make you think that he was this really hardworking, amazing guy who took my mother in and this rebellious little kid. Mm-hmm. And so he was able to manipulate situations. And I remember the day that the social worker came.
came to the house. I mean, years later, I still remember it like it was yesterday. And he told me to stay in the bedroom. He said, if you come out, I will break your neck. That was like the thing he used to always threaten mm-hmm. me with. I'll break your neck. Um, and he was sitting there with this social worker, just charming her. And not once did she ever look at me. And after that, I never told anyone anything. Wow. Because she was on my couch in my living room. I had bruises on my body. I was locked in the room, threatened, and she never came to look at me. And I was so discouraged that for many years, I never said anything. Even after I'm a rape survivor and Mm -hmm. I publicly speak about that um, when I talk to different audiences, even after I was raped, I was sexually assaulted in the fourth grade. The fourth grade. In the fourth grade, coming home from school, from classmates, schoolmates, um, in broad daylight. Wow. Wearing pink sweatpants. Thank God I was able to fight my way off and nothing beyond the assault happened. But I'm in fourth grade here. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when I was 15, I was raped by a neighbor and his cousin. And I never told anyone. I kept that in me because I felt that it wouldn't matter. Mm -hmm. I carried that with me for many years. So where was your mother in all of this? Because, you know, you may have been not your father's biological child. And she may not have had you for the first six years or so of your life, but you are her daughter. Mm -hmm. And she's got other kids. But clearly you're being treated differently, which I think I've heard this story repeatedly of of the oldest child who has a different parent, right, who's in the house but knows they're different, right. knows they're the odd man out, being treated as a servant, having to take care of the other kids, take care of the house, et cetera, as if they're there to be the help. But did you feel like your mom wasn't protecting you because she was fearful or did you did you perceive that as carelessness or mm-hmm. like she a- actually had an apathy mm-hmm. towards your experience in the home? So for a long time, I really hated my mother. Mm-hmm. I really, I used to wish death upon her. I really did because I could not understand how a mother would allow a man to treat her child Mm -hmm. the way that he was treating me. And I also lost respect for her because I couldn't understand why a woman would stay with a man that was so abusive. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I got older. First of all, I had to make a decision when I was a young woman that I would become bitter or I was going to forgive her, Mm -hmm. even if I didn't fully understand. And I chose to forgive her. I chose to forgive my stepfather. And doing that freed me up to heal from the things that they did Mm -hmm. or did not do that they should have done. Um... But what I what I remember during those years was I was very angry with my mother and I knew that she had a lot of stress. She was very stressed out woman. She was a chain smoker. She was very depressed. Mm -hmm. She was isolated. Now, you have to imagine we're living in a a very hostile environment inside and outside of the home. We don't have family in this country. We don't have any really, really friends that we could call. We live without a phone for probably almost all of my childhood really my stepfather would not allow a phone in the house I remember the first time that he allowed a, a phone I probably was about 15 years old and he had another phone in the room so anytime it rang he picked up the other line you could not have a conversation on that phone without him listening to it so it was that type of controlling mm-hmm. so I knew that she was under a lot of stress and pressure she was also overwhelmed with how was she going to feed and take care of five children right off of food stamps when she has a husband who is not contributing. Right. So she was extremely overwhelmed. And I just saw her. I honestly saw her as a weak woman. That's how I viewed her. And I was angry with her. And she made me realize that I never wanted to be like that. From when I was a teenager, I said, she may not have taught me what I want, but she surely showed me what I will not accept and what I do not want. And I knew from a young age that I would never accept somebody being abusive to me. Um, And I also hated poverty because of it, Mm -hmm. which is the reason that I got involved in network marketing and became an entrepreneur because I wanted to break this chain of poverty um, that my life was just so surrounded by for so many years. Okay. So you said that, you know, you were reading and and really dreaming of a situation or a world outside of what you were experiencing at that time. But you also were, at some point, were struggling with 
suicidal thought than actually attempted three times. Did that happen while you were still living at home or later? Mm -hmm. So I was in and out of my home Mm -hmm. between the age of 15 and 17. That was the time where my mother was, the abuse was getting more intense and more physical. And by the age of 16, she left my stepfather. Okay. She finally left him. However, the abuse continued from afar, meaning now he was using the system against her. So she had a police report against him. He went and got a police report against her. He went and told um, the police that she violated the order of protection and he made himself look again like this hardworking man that was at work and he has this crazy wife mm-hmm. that he's trying to break free from with this rebellious kid. And um, in those years, I was kicked out once. So I was kind of homeless, trying to find people to live with and just back and forth. So there was a lot of instability with sure. my housing during that time. In that in that same time frame, she did leave him. And now the abuse changed shape. It was no longer physical. It was more psychological and emotional. We used to get death threat letters. Um, I'm talking about real death threat letters that came in these weird envelopes and would say some very gruesome things that are not, I wouldn't even repeat mm-hmm. to anybody because they were so horrific. Um, but in that, it was very interesting because my mother and I got arrested for something that we didn't do and we spent an entire weekend in jail. And how old were you? I was 15 years old at the time. Did they put you in juvie or were I you? I was in juvie. Okay. I was with another girl. I was with a Hispanic girl. Um, the two of us were in a cell and my mother was in a cell across from me with about 24 other women. How did this happen? So he was abusing her and he kept threatening her. Um, again, they both had orders of protection. He filed a false police report and somehow the police would like take it to the judge, work it out. And they arrested both her and I. The report had said that both my mother and I went to his address and we were throwing rocks at his car or his house, some, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, we got arrested. <laughs> we spent the entire weekend in jail. And then it got even worse because my mother ended up spending six days in prison. She's a victim of domestic violence and she was being victimized by the very system that she was trying to get help from. Which happens all the time. Very often, yes. And during those years, my stepfather also got custody of my siblings. So he was able to get custody of them. Um, My oldest, the oldest child between the two of them, who was my sibling three years apart from me, her Mm -hmm. name was Vicky. um, She didn't want to live with him. Her and I were very close. And in the midst of this breakup, she became rebellious Mm -hmm. because of just the, the, the dysfunction. And she ended up getting involved in a gang and in about maybe two months, a few months after, she was found dead. So she was murdered. And how old was she? I was 18 at the time. Yes. So she was younger than you. She was three years younger than me. Wow. Yes. And we were like this close. Like that was my, that was my heart. And she was the only one that was able to live with my mom and I once my stepfather got custody. So that was a very painful thing, um, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And it was very, it was, it was that life changing moment where I decided that my sister became a victim of her environment. And in, in a, the only way that I could honor her was to get myself together mm-hmm. and to keep her story alive and to go and do something positive with my life. And that's really when I started to straighten up. I stopped drinking and hanging out and smoking and just doing all of these things that were coping strategies for me at the time. This was how I was surviving. Right. Um, and I, I was working and got enrolled in college. Um, got a, I ended up getting a promotion. Um, ended up in Brooklyn now, which is where I met my husband. Not even looking for a husband. Mm-hmm. And it was just a very interesting journey to know that after so much trauma and trial, that it was that one heart 
heartbreak with Vicky losing her life that I became determined Mm -hmm. more than ever that I was going to make something positive out of everything. It's like how as believers, we say whatever the enemy meant for evil, we're going to use it for good Mm -hmm. because that's what God does. I didn't know how. I had no, I had very, very minimal guidance, but I knew enough to know what I did not want. So eventually it led me in the right direction. Okay. So you were about 18. At that point, you had experienced sexual assault, physical abuse, arrest, suicidal thoughts or attempts by that point. At At that point, the death of a sibling, all by the time you reached voting age, essentially. You made a decision, which is impressive for a child, because if you know anything about psychology, your mind is still developing at that point. So for you to have all of that happen and then say, you know what, I've got to make some changes is impressive in, in and of itself. But did you feel like when you made that decision from that point forward that your life was an upward trajectory or were you still dealing with additional traumatic experiences? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like for a long time, I was like a hamster on a wheel. Mm-hmm. Like I had this determination and I had this perseverance. Like I know that because of the things I've gone through, I'm very resilient. Mm-hmm. So like I knew when I was facing five kids that wanted to fight me, that once I stop running, I will stand there and fight you. Mm -hmm. I'll fight you until I'm tired or I win or like I'll just stay and fight. So I knew that over time I became very resilient, even Mm -hmm. though it was a dysfunctional resilient. um, It was just that I hadn't dealt with the deeper parts of the trauma. So, yes, I was in college. I had this great job. Um, I met my great husband and I was now, I got married at 23 years old. Mm -hmm. So I got married young, not realizing that that was the, that was the stability that I needed, that I had been lacking, but I had a hard time adjusting to that. I had a hard time being a wife Mm -hmm. and being a mother and trying to be this career woman and this independent woman that I had to be for so long. So I felt like this hamster on a wheel that kept hitting walls. Mm -hmm. Like I would have a good run and hit a goal, but then I would crash And I would go through periods of seasonal depression Um, or I would have these moments where I would just like bust out crying, like things would just trigger me and I couldn't understand it. I was extremely insecure. I questioned if my husband really loved me because I'm thinking like there's no way somebody's going to love me with all this baggage that I have and all these issues. Um, So I was bringing I was bringing issues into my life, not realizing it because I still had a deeper part of me that needed to be healed. Yeah. I mean, and you, you basically started answering the question I was going to ask when you've experienced all of that and you went through your childhood and teenage years, not really knowing what love, genuine love and affection and affirmation is. How do you become an adult and have a functional romantic relationship? Did you even know how to receive love or were you able to identify this is a healthy situation? How did you decide like, okay, I'm going to give myself to this person and we're going to be together? You know, I tell you, honestly, it was nothing but the grace of God Mm -hmm. because had it been my own doing, I wouldn't be married today. And not because I didn't love my husband or my family, Mm -hmm. but because I was afraid. I was afraid that my husband would hurt me. Mm -hmm. I was afraid that um, he would disappoint me, that he would finally reveal that there was this whole other side to him Mm -hmm. because he was really the most genuine, most kind and loving and accepting man that I had ever met. And it was hard for me to receive that. So thank God he was patient mm-hmm. and he still is a patient man today. But there was a, a, a time frame in my mid-20s where I met someone who really had an impact on my life. Mm-hmm. And that is when things, they went, I mean, all hell broke loose first because, you know, it's like that moment right before you break through to another level in life. There's always this opposition that wants to keep you where you're comfortable and what you're used to. Mm -hmm. And I find that is the case in business. It's in relationships. It's in any area of life. When we're looking to get to another level, there's a breakthrough that has to happen. And 
I knew that I was in a place where I was breaking through to another level, but mm-hmm. all hell broke loose before that. Um, first of all, I had an encounter with God. My spiritual life um, became a priority for me. For many years, it, it wasn't a priority. I was angry with God. I lacked a lot of faith in a God. And I was what you call a searcher. Mm-hmm. I've been to everything from a mosque to a kingdom hall to um, let's do Dalai Lama meditation to witchery and Ouija boards. I've I've been exposed to and dabbled and to some degree studied many mm-hmm. of these things. Um, but it wasn't until I was in college and here I'm already a mother. You know, I have a young family. I was married for maybe maybe about three years now. And my brother-in-law introduced me to network marketing. Mm-hmm. Now, I knew nothing about it because of my background. I never thought about becoming a business owner. That was so far from my radar. It was like going away to a sleepaway college. There was never an option for me. It wasn't even something that was a possibility. So mm-hmm. I never looked into it. Um, so when network marketing, and then that's a whole nother story, but we ended up getting involved in network marketing and it was there that I was introduced to entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and personal development. And I found, uh, or God connected, I I should say my family with a business mentor and he became more than a business mentor. He became a spiritual father. He became a friend of the family and he played such an integral part in helping me to heal mm-hmm. and helping me to um, really affirm my relationship with God. And that was a really big turning point in my life. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit, right? Because you have an incredible story in that to come through all of that and find some level of stability and be spiritually grounded and, you know, find your healing, which probably is an ongoing process, Mm -hmm. right? That takes a while. Um, But people, like I'm just keep it all very real, they're going to see your photo and say, why did they have her on the show? Mm -hmm. Like, she doesn't quite fit the bill for December 26er because they're going to look at you know, 99% of the other uh, flyers that we have out there, whatever, whatever, and come to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you, I know your story and, and what have you, but a lot of times, especially given the climate that we live in, there's mm-hmm. a, a general mistrust amongst the black community of people who don't look like us, who have integrated or meshed themselves in with us. And you have a black husband. Let's make that clear. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's this idea of like, oh, she's culturally appropriated or this isn't really who she is. She's she's playing a role, not really knowing your backstory. Do you feel like you've had to work to show people that this is authentically who you are as a person and overcome certain judgments or, or stereotypes? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the climate, like you said, right? right? I'm, I live in an all-Black community. Mm-hmm. My children are Black, my husband's Black, and there are many white women who marry into Black culture, Um, It got to the point where I had to realize that I need to know who I am. Mm -hmm. I don't need to answer to anybody. I don't need anybody's validation. Um, There was a time when I needed and I felt like I always had to bring up certain things to kind of let you know that I'm down or get you like we hear. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't feel that pressure anymore. I feel like the people who are going to connect with me, they're going to know something's different about mm-hmm. me. And whether that has to do with my faith or just who I am as a person, I'm just in a space where if you don't like me, God bless you. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to try to convince you that I am X, Y, Z. Right. I don't try to be anything that I'm not. Um, I'm just who I am, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't fit into anybody's box. Right. I don't. And it throws people off. I remember one time I was driving in Brooklyn and I'm rapping to Tupac. I know all the words to keep your head up. And I was at a red light and somebody just looked at me and they were really upset with me. And I'm just like, you don't know, like I grew up to this. Right. This is, this was like escape for me. This was like, this was culture. This was, this was representative of not just my experiences, but the people that I loved who were part of those experiences. Right. And so I'm so thankful that I'm at peace 
there are times where I am in certain places and I realize I stand out mm-hmm. and it can get a little awkward. I'm not going to sit here and say that it doesn't get awkward right. because if you look at the news, you got 10 different white women in a week calling the cops on 10 different black innocent men. Right. They don't know me from Adam. So to them, how am I any different than any person that they see? Mm hmm. You know, so I understand that we're always going to have stereotypes. There'll always be preconceived notions. And the truth of the matter is on the broader spectrum of life, there will always be barriers. And unless we're willing to work to break those barriers down, and that's not just black and white, that's with anybody, Mm -hmm. whether we have different religious beliefs, whether we have different um, socioeconomic experiences, whatever it is, there will always be barriers that can separate us Mm -hmm. and stereotypes. You know, I I look at stereotypes as incomplete stories. There's a lot of truth to many stereotypes in the home where we grew up in. And even in our home, raising our kids, we make light of these things. We we have fun. We tell jokes. Mm -hmm. My brother-in-law and I, We get together, black and white jokes all day. (laughs) That's what we do. But it's all in love. However, we also understand that because of the the culture and the animosity that's out there right now and legitimate animosity, that you have to be mindful. You have to be sensitive. So I try to look at it from being on the other side. I know what it feels like to be a minority. I don't know what it feels like to be black. I'll never know what it feels like to be black. But I do identify with being a minority where everywhere I go for the most part of my life, I will always stand out and people will always judge me without knowing the backstory mm-hmm. because of that. Why are you here in the projects? Why do you live in Brownsville? Why do you, why are you married to a black man? Why do you want to be down? And there's all of these different things that I know people have said and may say. So again, I'm just glad that I'm at peace with who I am and I don't feel like I have to prove anything to right. anyone. You're yeah. But I'm glad you said I don't know what it is to be black because I I think sometimes that is where things get dicey for people when someone who's not black is like, but I'm down, though. And I grew up in this community and I'm I'm a black person trapped in a white person's body. That's when it gets a little bit interesting and it's offensive and, and people don't realize why that is offensive. And your experience. Right. This is who you are. And I think it's even doubly significant for you because your entree into America. American culture was black culture. Mm -hmm. You came from somewhere else. It's not like you found this when you went to college or, you know, I, I was raised, you know, I got pulled from my family. I was in a foster family and that's why, you know, I, I relate. You literally got exposed Mm -hmm. to the U S and how we live within a black community, which is intriguing in and of itself. Um, so I I think that's an important distinction. And I'm glad that you said that, that I don't know what it is to be black. I know what it is to be in a, a minority in a group and to stand out, but I don't know what it is to be black. So for those who consider themselves woke or down um, white folks, let's just Mm -hmm. say it, you know, what's the appropriate way to be an ally? Because I think people say it like I'm an ally, I'm an ally, but they don't really know what that should look like Mm -hmm. in their actions or their their deeds. So what does that mean for you to be an ally to the black community? Okay, well, heavy question, right? (laughs) It is a heavy question just because I just see things and they irritate me Mm -hmm. when it comes to certain white people. Mm -hmm. Um, As I've gotten older, I've been able to travel different places and I reunited with my family in Germany after 25 years. And that was an experience Um, going to Austria, just traveling, going to different places, going to network marketing. Mm -hmm. I was exposed to different people outside of my community. And I find there's so much naivety Mm -hmm. when it comes to social constructs, racism and things like that. Um, And just having the conversation is very annoying and frustrating many times. I had a, like, I'll give you an example. I had a conversation with someone about a project called Mass Bailout, Mm -hmm. which I support. I support the Mass Bailout project um, because I do believe that slavery has shaped form in the sense that there is a school to prison pipeline that's very real. And anyone that disregards that um, has not read history and does not know the fundamentals of how society works. And even the fundamental of black history. Mm -hmm. And so the mass bailout project is designed to help those who are poor not be caged up because of low level 
nonviolent crimes, many of them first time offenders who may have a bail anywhere from one dollar to twenty five hundred dollars. Right. Um, and they're locked up because they don't have the resources, the monetary means, whereas someone who does have the monetary and, and predominantly it, it happens to be white people who can afford to pay that bail. Mm-hmm. Um, someone said to me that it's like letting all the criminals out. Well, to me, that tells me that you think that everybody in jail is a criminal. Right. And I have an issue with that. When you have the largest population in jail are black men and black women, and that number continues to increase. Now, I can't say that I love the black people who helped raise me, my mentors, my pastor. I can't say that I love my husband and my children who are black. I can't say that I love you if I don't have the, if I don't have the heart to try to identify with the issues that will affect you Mm -hmm. directly and indirectly. So for me, I believe that a strong ally will always go the extra mile to try to understand the things beyond personal opinions. Mm -hmm. So when you tell me your opinion of what life is like as a black woman, that's your opinion, right? But if I say that I'm an ally, I'm going to go beyond your opinion and I'm going to see what the facts are about what shaped your opinion and what shaped your experiences. And that will show me that we do have races, uh, white supremacist um, ideology threaded into American society. I've seen it. I've gone into all black schools and I've seen where we've had no notebooks, teachers overworked, underpaid. We didn't have labs. I remember the last year of high school, we had an EMT program and I was excited. I had just finished my nursing program and I had a wonderful black woman who taught me. Her name was Miss Smith. Um, and I, I love her because she was she was so impactful in my life in those years. And I, we had an EMT program and they shut it down in the middle of the school year because wow. they didn't have funding, quote unquote funding. They would never do that in certain communities. So when people tell me um, about being an ally or this whole discussion of race coming up, read some books. Yes, ask questions, hear the opinions and the voices, but go the extra mile. And I really believe that there's levels to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just this thing that's black and white. It's levels. It's very intricate. Some of it is not it's not right in front of our face. We wouldn't see it unless we go the extra mile. Right. And I believe in going the extra mile. That's what love is supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. So we could even take it to another level and say as Christians, which that word is extremely combative nowadays right. because you don't know who's a quote unquote Christian because everybody says they're a Christian and look at some of the madness that they're doing. These Trump supporters. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so you have all of these people who are hiding behind this title of Christian, but for me as a follower of Jesus and as a follower of of the principles that he taught, to me, love is going the extra mile. It's about being uncomfortable. It's about denying myself and my self-interest so that way I can love you right. That's really what it's about. So that's what I would say a real ally is. It's, it's, It's more than just having these conversations, having this one Black friend, going to Black circles and spaces and like, yeah, I support Mm -hmm. We're here. No, it's about feeling the pain. And as a mother, if I don't feel the pain of a black mother who has to bury her child the way that I would my own child, then I'm not an ally. Mm -hmm. I'm not. But when I see a mother, I don't care what color her skin is. If I see a mother who has to bury her child because of police brutality or gang violence or anything, if I don't feel that, like that was my own child, then my heart is not where it's supposed to be as a believer. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that is especially true when it comes to black and white. So for me, I don't think about it. It's just who I am. Right. It's just my, it's part of my makeup and, and the experiences that have shaped me. I love people. I love people from all over. I have Muslim friends and Jewish friends, black, white. I don't care. I don't care if you're 16 years old or if you're 59 or 89 years old. I love people because I do know that regardless of anything, we all share something called the human experience. Right. We do. And I do believe that if we can get to that place where we see that, we would find that there are more things that can bring us together versus bring us, separate us and keep us apart. But I think you brought up two points that really resonated with me, particularly getting informed and being willing to be uncomfortable. Because one of the gripes you will hear within Black circles is 
people calling themselves an ally, but wanting us to do the work, to educate, make them feel comfortable, say, oh, okay, you know, it, it's okay. You're not, you're not one of them. And we know that making them feel good about feeling terrible, if that makes sense. Like, it's not enough just to say, I feel bad about what happened and expecting us to comfort you. Mm-hmm. And the same information that is available to me as a black woman by way of statistics and understanding what's going on in the world and socioeconomic issues are available to those who don't look like me. So you don't have to come back to us to get that information. You can go find it for yourself. Like you said, you can take our experience and what we're saying and value and honor and respect that, but then say, you know what, I'm going to go research this for myself. So I think you've put forth an incredible message in that have that, if you have access to information, even if you don't get it and also be willing to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. because for us, discomfort is a way of life, right? And in, in hostile environments and, you know, dealing with racist microaggressions and et cetera. So I think that was really powerful. Wonderful. For sure. Yeah. Um, so I want to make sure that we have a moment to talk about the brand that you're building now and the work that you do. So how have your experiences really informed who you are today and the kind of work that you do in the community and beyond? Mm-hmm. Well, I believe that it has really made me more compassionate mm-hmm. to people. Um, I have a heart for just people that others would maybe count out. Um, I like to see the underdog win. I love to see people going from a place of um, maybe surviving to mm-hmm. thriving because that that's where I come from. I was I constantly prided myself on being a survivor. Mm-hmm. And I realized like this is not healthy. Like just and especially in in black culture, like there's this thing where you you kind of get props for being tough, right? Mm-hmm. You get you get props for being strong all the time, um, for being independent, for proving that you can make it through hard times. And I think that that's very, I think that's very damaging mm-hmm. in the long run. And I, I prided myself on being this survivor. Like I've been through this, I've been through this. And then I realized like, I, don't, I need to stop surviving. I need to thrive now. Right. Where am I going from here, right? Um, and that's where vision came in. Like, what was my vision? I've always been a dreamer, as I mentioned before, but to actually sit down and and ask God, what is my purpose and what is a vision that I can pursue? Um, The brand Look Up and Beyond, really the heart of that is about looking up and beyond our past and our circumstances. Mm -hmm. It's about having a vision that we can draw from um, and be inspired from to keep us moving forward when those negative things just try to keep pushing, pulling us back. Um, Because I felt like I was constantly being pulled back Mm -hmm. to these dark places, my mistakes, the trauma, the abuse, all of these things. And they became my identity. And I believe that so many people have such a false identity about who they are because they've allowed the negative things that have happened to them shape who they believe they are. Right. And so Look Up and Beyond really is about engaging people in a process Um where first we want to deal with the trauma. Mm-hmm. We want to deal with the trauma. I do a lot of suicide. Um, I'm on call for suicide attempt survivors or people who are in distress. Mm-hmm. And once we can get them out of that area, how can we get them to the environment and the resources so that they're not just surviving, but thriving? Right. Help them to know that they have a purpose beyond their pain. Awesome. And this is your full-time work, This right? is what I do. Yeah. So you're on call, you're speaking all over. You travel and speak, right? Yeah. And are you just giving talks on your experience? Yeah. So what I do is I, I do a lot of resilience training. I tie my story into um, the theme of what I'm sharing. Mm-hmm. This Saturday, I'll be in New Jersey and um, the audience will be 95% of a Muslim women. Wow. Um, and I'm excited about that because... It's another opportunity to break down barriers. It's another opportunity to connect with people on a human level. Right. We have total different beliefs, but you know what? We can find a lot of common ground and together we can make this world a better place. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking forward to being in New Jersey for that event. Jersey stand up. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you've told us about a lot of incredible experiences where you've had to really overcome, but can you pick out a specific moment outside of all the things you talked about already where you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day? I will definitely say what stands out to me was when I was in network marketing mm-hmm. um, and I was being built 
before Look Up and Beyond, before I even knew about it. There was a time where I had to make a decision if I was going to continue moving forward with the vision that I had, even not fully realizing what it was, just knowing that I had a greater purpose than myself. Um, I stumbled into professional speaking. Mm -hmm. I'm naturally an introvert. I don't like to be in the front of the room. Um, I was called to be in front of the room and I'm, I'm literally answering a call all my life, but it's not something that I would have chosen. I did event planning. And so I love being behind the scenes, mm-hmm. just making it all come together from behind the scene. Um, but there was this time where it just got really, really difficult and the money wasn't coming in. I felt like I was working 80 hours a week. Um, I was going to appointments. People wouldn't show up. People were hanging up on me. I don't want this. Um, memberships were canceling. I was having tension in my marriage because we were not communicating effectively the financial pressure and wanting more for my children than what I had experienced and those frustrations. And so when when you look at your life and, and you have to make a decision to say, well, do I continue on this road that I really believe in my heart is taking me somewhere where you have to have faith, you have to walk by faith and not by sight? Or do I do what's comfortable and do I go back and get a job and focus on the money and doing what everybody else is doing, I had to make that decision. Um, And I felt like on that day, I chose to be broke and to be in a tight situation and that I was going to walk by fate to know that at some point this was all going to come together. Mm -hmm. And eventually it did. And it's still coming together because your vision always evolves. It's not something you don't ever arrive. Um, And I really believe that our journey is more about who we're becoming than where we're going and what we're doing. And so there's this constant evolving that's happening. Um, but it's it's making that choice to say that I'm choosing to do something greater mm-hmm. than what's comfortable. And that's a hard thing to do when you have three kids to feed, right. when you're being evicted, when your business is failing, you have private school tuition that's knocking on your door. And they want their they money. They want their money. <laughs> um, and you have all these stressors and factors and you have to make that decision. Right. And I believed in my heart and I and I'm grateful that I have a husband who we shared the same heart with that. Mm-hmm. And we were able to even in the midst of us bumping heads and, and working through some of the difficulty, we had the same heart and we were like, we are in this together. Um, and I think it takes an extraordinary amount of faith to make that decision when everything around you says otherwise. Right. And everybody's not built for it. Everybody's not built. You for know, it. some people are like, I'm just going to go get this job and and make it work. And that's a fine choice as well. Um, I always say like, you know, people push entrepreneurship, push entrepreneurship. You know, I was in it for a number of years um, full time. And, you know, I was one of those ones who was touting like a job Mm -hmm. stands for just over broke. You need to build Mm -hmm. something, you know, for yourself. Um, But for some people that is okay. And then also I think it's okay to have passions that you choose not to monetize as well. You know, everything now is about how do I turn myself into a brand and you see all the sponsored posts about how mm-hmm. I took my passion to a hundred thousand dollar a month business. We are proponents of financial security on this show. We have a phrase that we say no coin left behind, right? So we're about getting that money as well. Um, but that path can look different for different people. And for you, that meant, you know what, I'm going to dig my heels in. And I'm going to ride this out. Mm-hmm. And for somebody else, it may, it may mean this is not working for me Absolutely. and uh, it's time for me to move on to something else. And as you said, that vision evolves. So sometimes it's saying, okay, what are the lessons I needed to learn from this chapter? Now I need to pivot and do something a little bit differently, mm-hmm. but take what I learned here and apply it to the next that's phase right. of this vision. So I think it's something that's a, it's a dynamic process. It's not fixed and you could be on one path and realize, okay, I, I got to detour a little bit or, or do something a little bit differently. And you seem to have done an amazing job of, you know, sticking on a, a path and having faith over here, but also taking your story and creating an initiative that goes beyond I just I'm just helping people. You're speaking, you know, yeah. you're you're all over as well, which is powerful to to have your story transform into a brand. And I don't know if you've been able to monetize your speaking as well, but people don't realize there's power there mm-hmm. and there and there are there's money available there to is, people. Yes, and I have been able to mm-hmm. do that. And like I said, it 
was not something that I had planned to do. Um, it was amazing that someone would cut me a check to come and speak. Right. I mean, it was like, really? Okay. Um, I do a lot of nonprofit work, mm-hmm. right? So I, a lot of what I do is ministry. That is how I got involved in this here. Um, but I also realized that I need to pay bills. Right. Let's keep it real. <laughs> them bills are not going to care how many people you minister to or whose crisis calls you're taking and mm-hmm. what good you do for the world. You have bills to pay. And I realized that it's just an extension to my ministry. Um, and, and I wanted to address the job thing because mm-hmm. I, even though I'm an entrepreneur and I was in the network marketing culture, um, it was the one thing I did not like about network marketing was that they made people who work jobs feel guilty. And mm-hmm. I don't believe that everybody is called to be an entrepreneur. And I believe that we all take a unique path and journey and there's no wrong or right way. Same as career, same as whether you choose to be single, married, not everybody's cut out for marriage. Not everybody wants children. There's no wrong or right way. Nobody right. is better than the other one. Um, so it's like you have to just know who you are. And I really believe a lot of it has to do with knowing what your purpose is in God. What mm-hmm. did God create you to do? And when we go to the person who created us, when we go to the one who um, created us, I believe that that's where we'll find answers. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned what you hate about network marketing because... I've gotten impassioned on this show a couple of times about it, and I have issues, okay? Because often people who are representatives of these companies, they come especially to underserved communities, Mm -hmm. and they present an opportunity, like, you can be a millionaire doing this. You know, all you got to do is sign up these Mm -hmm. people and do this and do that, and not realizing that that's not the path for everyone. Everyone doesn't have the skill set to make that work, and they're putting out this money thinking, okay, you know, this is my big ticket out of poverty, and that's not the story. Forever. It takes a special kind of person to be successful at and that. And I felt like network marketing was going to be my ticket. Mm-hmm. Here I am at 25 years old, introduced to it for the first time. I'm meeting people who built six-figure, seven-figure income. Right. They're living lavishly, um, not in a way where it's it's irresponsible for the most part. I mean, there were some, but the people that I connected with, they were solid, faithful, faith-filled people. Mm-hmm. They had wealth-building principles that they were disciplined. Um, to execute in their lives. And so they lived very well. And when I saw those examples, many of them had GEDs and high school diplomas, right. college dropouts. Listen, I, I dropped out in, in when I was pursuing my bachelor's because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I was paying money to get a degree that I didn't know what I was going to study, what I was going to do. So when network marketing came, I was like, why am I paying for college when I can get six figures? I could become a millionaire. <laughs> here. Overnight. Right. But you know what network marketing did? It revealed to me so much of my flaws and shortcomings. Mm -hmm. And it revealed to me the places that I needed to heal. So it took me 10 years of healing and personal development to be able to do what I do today. Wow. 10 years. So it was like a real butterfly in the cocoon, wrapped up real tight Mm -hmm. in that cocoon um, for those 10 years before I even started to be able to break out and, and, and become this butterfly, if you may, to be able to walk in my purpose. 10 years. But I accredit um, network marketing and the, the environment mm-hmm. for that. And so when I go to colleges and I speak at schools, high schools, colleges, I encourage young people to get involved in network marketing. I let them know that even if you find that business is not for you and entrepreneurship, the life lessons that you can learn from that, they will really improve your life life drastically if you really engage in the learning environment of a network marketing company. Mm -hmm. And that's where um, I appreciate the value that network marketing brings. But the other stuff and the whole um, just money, 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 everything money, you know, like you got to show off this and show off that to prove to your team that um, first of all, I'm not a lavish person. I'm a very simple person. And if if I'm ever wealthy, nobody would ever know it. It's the Um, best way to be. Quiet money. Right. Hello. So, but there was this culture of you just had to constantly show. You got to show the new car. You got to show the house. And I've seen people, their whole marriage and family crumble because of that pressure of them trying to put up this facade just so that their team would follow them. Right. And eventually it all crumbles. 
Um, and I'm so thankful that we didn't get caught up in that. But again, the the personal development and the life lessons, the learning how to connect with people, because everybody communicates, but very few people know how to connect with people. And I really believe that you can make some money in network marketing. But we put our kids through private school. Mm-hmm. Three kids, private school, because we didn't want them having public school experiences the way that we had. Um, but we were never rich from network marketing. It just it it wasn't our thing. Right. But the value that we were able to extract from it has positioned us to really thrive as entrepreneurs and to do other things in other areas successfully. Mm -hmm. So you're in this phase of speaking now and building this brand, continuing to build the brand, look up and beyond. What else is on the horizon for Jessica Janier? Yeah, so I'm excited because um, I don't really know. There's a a lot going on. I just released my second book. Mm -hmm. Um, That's on pre-order right now. That was for students because the, the past two years I've been working more in the student market between uh, middle school, high school, and college students. And I really felt compelled to write a personal development book that would empower young people so that when they get into their 20s and 30s, they're not um, t- broken from the traumas of life. It really is about building resilience in your youth years so that way you can better manage the difficulties right. of life, right? So I'm doing that. I'm doing speaking. I host an annual conference each year and every year it grows. This year we had over a hundred, I think 150 people almost. And people were coming from Georgia. Wow. Um, we had people come from Connecticut, New Jersey, Philly. And I was just like, okay, we're onto something here. And we talk about looking up and beyond Mm -hmm. and how to take practical strategies and bridge the gap between personal development and faith to bring these visions to life. And it's, it's been really amazing to see something that started with this small vision with 50 people in a room and each year it grows. So that's one of the things that's near and dear to my heart. A lot of work. Oh man. A lot of work. People who have never put on any kind of conference have no idea. A lot of work and just a lot of behind the scenes, mental and emotional prep work. Right. Um, So we have the conferences. I'm doing workshops in different places, keynotes, the books. As soon as this book officially launches next month, I'm already working on the next book. Wow. Yes. Because I have I have at least four other books in me, like right now where I'm at. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I know I'll be writing more and, you know, down the line, I I don't know. I want to travel more. I want to, I, I'm, I'm in a transitional phase of my life. My children are getting older. My daughter just start, started college. Wow. And she's in Johnson and Wales. Hey, my hey. baby. Yes. What's that? Rhode Island? That's in Rhode yeah. Island. Mm-hmm. Culinary student. Mm-hmm. And she's studying culinary arts and entrepreneurship. Um, so mentoring them and helping them to transition, right? Because I mentor a lot of young people and I do coaching. I do a lot of different things, but my children are my first mentees. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so helping them transition in these very critical life moments. We're looking at colleges now for my firstborn son, who will be graduating at 16 years old. Wow. Yeah. He wants to go into mechanical engineering. Um, just bright kids. My youngest son is looking for high schools right now. He wants to go to high school. So I think I've got a lot. You got <laughs> enough to keep you, you keep you busy <laughs> to keep for sure. Me busy, yeah. So let's make sure we plug your book that's already out. What is it called and where can people find it? So you can find it at jessicajanier.com forward slash new book. Um, the name of the book is Look Up and Beyond. It's a student edition. It's about overcoming adversity and becoming more resilient. And it was specifically written for the demographic of 13 to 19 year olds. But I've had quite a few young at heart adults <laughs> order the book so far um, who love personal development. It's a, a book that really inspires creative journaling. Um, It has little snippets of stories from my memoir, so my personal stories, and then it ties it into a teaching moment and there's affirmations. So it's this whole experience and the chapters are very short and to the point so that way you don't have to read this 500 page book to have something meaningful and practical. So I'm really excited and proud of this book because I really believe that it will, um, it has the potential to minimize the suicide rate within the young community 
community, the youth population, and um, it really focuses on dealing with trauma mm-hmm. and how to cope with that trauma successfully. Awesome. And you have a memoir that's already out, right? I do. Is yes. that on Amazon or is that on your website? Yeah. So well? it's on, available on Amazon. That memoir is called My Colored World. Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. I too. So you mentioned your website, jessicajunior.com. Where can people find you on social media? So I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Those are like the main ones mm-hmm. that I use. Yeah. And that's under my name, Jessica Janier. J-E-S-S-I-C-A-J-A-N-N-I-E-R-E. Jessica Janier. Awesome. Well, listen, we definitely had a New York City soundtrack tonight. Let's hope we can get out of this building because we had sirens for like the whole hour. <laughs> I don't know what's going on outside, but... New York. Yeah. Gotta love New York. And to our listeners, make sure you look Jessica up online. Check out her book where you can get even more detail on her story uh, for childhood and, and teen years. Make sure you support her. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Tovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 